now we launch out into chapter 11. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The town of Mary and her sister Martha, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Amen. Let us pray. Father, you have appointed the preaching of your word to show forth the glory, the beauty, the excellency, and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners. Father, the world deems this foolish, and yet it is through the foolishness of men that you show forth your power of salvation. Father, we pray that as your word is open and explained, that the Spirit would attend it, that you would give us understanding, that you give clarity in the words preached, as well as in the word heard, that your Spirit would work in us to bring the word deep into our hearts, that it might find good soil, spring up and bear and bring forth fruit for your glory. Lord, bless and encourage us as your people as we hear the good word of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. just want to cast back a glance at something outside of John's gospel. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he chases uh, the ancestor of Jesus all the way back to Adam in the garden. And there Adam is listed, Luke writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God is the father of Adam, his creator, but also God is his father. As God and father of Adam, he knew what was best for Adam. He knew what would be best for this new creation. And, of course, he provided him in a beautiful and luxuriant place to live and placed him in the Garden of Eden, providing him a help meet suitable for him. Knowing what was best for Adam, God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Adam's father knew what was best for Adam and for his creation. The Lord commanded Adam also of every tree of the garden, and remember there's a superabundance. He said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Again, as Adam's father, God knew what was best for Adam. But what happened? Satan came entering in the form of a serpent. He came with deceit and lies and treachery. Satan questioned whether God, as Adam's father, knew what was best. Satan said that Adam did not need God, and that if he were to eat of the forbidden fruit, that his eyes would be open, and that he would become like God, knowing good from evil. And Adam rebelled. He disobeyed God, his father. He fell in sinned and fell from the place of sinlessness and perfection in the intimacy of fellowship and communion with the living God of heaven, and he plunged himself into a state of sin and misery. 
because Adam represented us as the first man, the only man, and we all proceed from him, we all sinned in him and fell with him in that transgression. And thus, we are all conceived in sin. We are born as sinners, and thus we sin as surely as the sparks fly upward. One of the problems, because of the treachery of Satan, is we're wise in our own eyes. As sinners, we think we know what is best for our lives, and we go beyond that. We think what isn't be- we think we know what's best for those around us. We tell them what we ought to do. We just heard of the tenth commandment, and we kick against it. We are discontented. We want to be God. We want others to bow before us and serve us and do our holy will, and we take away from God the glory that is for Him alone. And for this reason, history is filled with conflict. Wars, bloodshed, the history, both that written in the scriptures, these early books of long ago, even the history that men have recorded, demonstrate that men, women, boys, and girls, in all generations of all people groups, think they can have it their own way. Just look at advertising. Advertising is constantly catering to your appetites, your lust, your desires, saying that you can have what you desire. But here's the truth. God is still God. He is still seated upon his throne. And you and I are not God. Nor could we ever be. And nor would we be happy to be God, nor would anyone around us be happy otherwise. We cannot make everything happen in perfect order. We don't know the end from the beginning. Uh, There's the doctrine of unintended consequences. We set something in motion and things turn out that we did not expect. We see that on the world stage day by day. And even as redeemers, and even as sinners redeemed by Christ with new hearts, we often chafe against the rule of God, his sovereign rule all over us all. We confess with our mouth, our Father knows best. We sing uh, in hymns, you know, what air my God ordains is right. And yet we want to have our will. We struggle to submit to him and to seek his glory and honor. This is one of the lessons from this text. God's timing and plan are displayed here. And they're the very best that there are. We see two sisters experiencing a great heartbreak. And then we'll be presented with the greatest miracle to take place up to this point in history, we're going to use three main headings the family of Bethany, the family's prayer, and the father's will. So the text begins with the family of Bethany. There was a certain man, sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. Bethany is about two miles out of Jerusalem on the side of the Mount Olives, a, a, a Place near hand, it's a place that we often find Jesus taking respite. Um, John gives us specific information to distinguish this from the other Bethany, Bethany that he wrote of back in chapter 1 and verse 28. Bethany up along the Jordan, an area where Jesus at the time that these events are happening is where he's probably at. He's probably near that other Bethany. But he tells us, no, this, this is the town of Martha and Mary, these sisters And John writes about Martha and Mary in such a way that he expects the original readers of this text to be familiar with them. Look again. He says, uh, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary and Martha 
were already characters in the gospel. They are mentioned in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all speak of Mary and Martha. You may remember some years ago now, I don't want to even guess how many it's been, when Pastor Tony was preaching through the gospel according to Luke, how Jesus visited his friends Uh, This very family and how Mary was seated at Jesus' feet as he was teaching and Martha was busy about uh, the hospitality and the preparations and the caring for those that were in her home and she became uh, discontent Uh, and she grumbled. She went to Jesus, do you not care that I'm waiting on everyone and my sister Mary is just seated at your feet? Jesus gently corrected Martha saying, Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. This Mary and this Martha. Now, there were several other Marys in the company that followed Jesus. Again, reading the Gospels, you will find Marys, several mentioned. Of course, one of whom was Jesus' mother, according to the flesh. So, John tells us something very specific about this Mary. Verse 2 It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil, wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. That Mary. Again, an event that would have been known. John's writing later. John is the last gospel writer to write in the course of the unfolding of the writing in the New Testament. But he tells us something very specific. Now, the event that John refers to is recorded both in Matthew 26 as well as in Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. He records what happens. Mary anointed Jesus with a very costly uh, ointment, a very fragrant perfume. Uh, She broke it open. And anointed his head and so forth with it. And of course we know the disciples grumbled at that occasion. But what we see here is this very generous display of Mary and her love for her Savior. Now when we consider that that event took place after what's recorded in John 11, we would understand that Jesus came and raised her brother from the dead. I mean, what would be too lavish of a gift uh, to pour forth onto one who had done so much? Surely, as those who us who are sinners have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and have been brought into union with Christ by faith, we've received even a greater love. Not only have we had a family member or a child, a spouse raised from the dead, we have been raised from the dead by Christ himself. For we're dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sin. And when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all the work that Christ has accomplished becomes yes and amen for us. We who were once dead are now made alive. God has taken out a heart of stone, a heart of sin, and he's given us a heart of flesh, a heart that is Godward. And what would be too lavish to bestow upon the Lord? Well, we see that this Mary bestowed such a lavish gift that John recounts it, even at the occasion when that took place and there was the grumbling over Mary's gift, Jesus said that wherever the gospel is told, that her gift would be recounted. And here we are some 2,000 years later. Jesus' words, true, we're remembering the lavish love of Mary for her Savior, who had shown her even a greater love. <clears throat> what we see with this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, there's a tremendous friendship between these two sisters and brother with the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament record indicates that they were often involved in showing generous hospitality to Christ and his disciples as they would travel and come into that region. Friendship is a special blessing. 
It is something that we enjoy within the body of Christ beyond that that the world knows. The world has the general blessings and under God's goodness of friendships, but how much more so amongst the people of God? Jesus had close friends while he was on the earth. It's remarkable to note that in his humanity, as the God-man, as man, he had friends. But what a friend was Jesus. What a friend was Jesus unto those who knew him and walked with him. And my friends, that is still true today. There is no better friend than Jesus. In the Proverbs 17, we're told that a, a friend loves at all times. And in another place, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Who would that be but the Lord Jesus Christ? The fulfillment of that. And not only closer than a brother, but he is our brother. He's our elder brother, the firstborn of creation, the first of the Father. And in him we have redemption. Well, based on what we find written in the Word of God, we can conclude that outside of the disciples, those 12 that traveled with Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were of the very closest friends to Jesus. John 11 records that Lazarus is ill. We've read that portion that deals with us. Many of you will be familiar with this chapter. We know that he goes on to die. That's what's recorded. But then Jesus comes, and he raises him from the dead. What a remarkable miracle. And then the family will hold a banquet in Jesus' honor, and a large crowd will come, John tells us, to see Jesus and Lazarus. They want to see this man that Christ is raised from the dead. Would you not want to? You know, if in, in, a, in a village near here, some town near here, you, you heard that someone is raised from the dead, you'd want to go and see the marvel. Uh, people have not changed. But after such a mighty miracle, there's also the religious leaders of that day that hated Jesus, and they were even more resolved and determined than they had been to kill Jesus. They even entertained the notion of killing Lazarus. So great was their hate against Christ. Well, one last thing before we move on. This family's encounter with Jesus transformed them. Lazarus is quiet and retiring. We don't really know anything about him until this takes place. But after his resurrection, he's happy to speak about the greatness and the grandeur and the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And going forward, Martha is seen serving many more times in her home without any grumbling. And Mary, as we've already noted, was willing to break open a very costly bottle of perfume to anoint Jesus for burial. Before we go on, just some application. I ask you, has Christ made a profound impact on your life? Have you experienced something of the marvelous grace of God and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ whereby he has altered everything the way you see everything, the way you experience everything. Has he transformed your family, your family dynamics? Do you see uh, that the love of Christ is at work in your home, transforming all who are there? Has he come by his spirit to transform you from death unto life? Has your encounter with Jesus affected how you relate to others? Do you see them differently? Do you relate to them differently? Is there something Christ-like about the way that you engage with others? You see... When you meet Jesus, nothing stays the same. He transforms. For some, their hearts are filled with love and desire to serve Christ. But even as I've alluded to here, there are others, when they've had an encounter with Jesus, that are even more determined to be done with him, to put him out of their thinking, out of their minds, out of their lives, out of their world. What about you? 
What will you do with Jesus? What's your response to him? Well, moving on, we go then to consider the family's prayer. At the end of John chapter 10, John told us that Jesus went out to the River Jordan, that area where John the Baptist had begun his ministry, where he was ministering. It was the very place where John had anointed Jesus as the Messiah, the God-man, as he began his ministry. Look at verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They've sent a messenger, uh, perhaps a servant in the household. They've sent them uh, to where Jesus was. And it would have been a journey. It would have taken uh, at least a day or so to go from one place to where that place to where Jesus was. We could say from Bethany to Bethany, perhaps. It would have taken some time. But they sent a messenger to Jesus. Notice how, what's in their message. I don't want it in the first word, but the second one. Lord, behold. I hope your translation has that. It's, it's a, a, a message of alarm, of note. It's as, as though they're surprised. Uh, when you see something remarkable, it's like, look. You know, we might do that today. And that's the nature of what they're saying. Behold. There's, there's an alarm in them. Lazarus sick. This was not something they expected. They're close friends of Jesus. Did they think that they would not get sick? We need to understand nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible teach that bad things won't happen to those who follow Jesus. Indeed, they often do. Uh, the, The trials, the suffering, the afflictions that we endure as the followers of God, God uses for our growth in grace to conform us more to the image of his son. As the scripture speaks of the burning off of the dross of our old patterns and habits, that we would become more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, there's something of an alarm with Mary and Martha that the brother's sick. It was not expected. The sickness was severe, and there would have been alarm in that as well. And so they send the word to Jesus. We're also reminded in this reality of illness of the garden, where we begin. God had told Adam that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And he did. Immediately he was out of fellowship with God. There was a spiritual death immediately upon the occasion of him eating of that fruit. And then he began the process of dying. Adam was made by God to live forever. He was made in absolute perfection. He went on to live 900 and some years. But he died. So he hid. When he heard God, he hid from God because fellowship was ruined. But God then also came and put a curse On the creation, because of Adam's sin, cursed is the ground because of you. Now we will bring forth thorns. Work was already there in the order of creation before there was sin, but God said, now your work will be by the sweat of your brow. We all know that. Anybody work out in the yard this last week? Right? Reminded of the curse. The curse also brought sickness, disease, deformities, defects, Heartaches, sorrows because of sin. Some people want to mock God that as a good God he would visit such things upon people having the power to not do that. But God actually is merciful in doing that because he's reminding us of the most important thing that we need to know. We are apart from him. We are sinners and we have no fellowship with him and we need a redeemer. And it was even on that occasion of the garden that God promised there would be the seed of the woman. That woman who said to her husband, take and eat. God says, there would be a seed of a woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. And of course, 
the scripture makes clear that the fulfillment of that is this one who is here in this text, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman, the seed of the Virgin Mary. He did not have a father as we do. God sent the Holy Spirit to move upon the Virgin, and she conceived and brought forth the most remarkable of all, God incarnate, God come in the flesh, the God-man who came to save sinners. Disease, affliction, suffering remind us of our need of a Savior. But those of us who are found in Christ remind us of how great a salvation we have. That we can walk through the struggles and the trials of this world in a confidence upon him, resting in him, but also knowing that at the end of our days, he will bring us into the very presence of God the Father to eternal blessing and bliss, even as our elder mentioned earlier, to wipe away the tar, to every tear, all the suffering, all gone. We have good news here that we don't face all that stuff alone. We face it in Christ. And Martha and Mary have that understanding. They didn't cast around for a solution there about them. No doubt they were caring for Lazarus, keeping him comfortable, applying the best home remedies they would have had from that day. But what's their impulse? We need Jesus. And they send a message to Jesus. They seek him and his help. But what's remarkable is that Mary and Martha, they put their message. Verse 3 again. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Isn't that remarkable? He whom you love is sick. Mary and Martha could have said, our brother whom we love. They most assuredly did. But that's not their message. They didn't say, Lord, because you love us as a family. They they spoke specifically of Lazarus. They knew that the Lord loved him. He said, he is the one that is sick. Their prayer to Jesus is not based on their love for Jesus, but Jesus' love for them. We also can notice they don't say, Lord, you know how much we love you. And we love you so much that you owe us. Certainly that's not the way we bargain with God. Do we love God as we should? Next week we'll be considering the first great commandment. We read it this morning. We're to the love of the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Anybody here that's ever done that, stand up. Have you ever loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? There's not one moment that we're able to do that. And yet he loved us. God loved us while we were yet sinners. He sent Christ to save us. While we were rebellious, he sent his son to save us. They knew that Jesus loved him. Here's a very important foundation for prayer here. Our prayer is rooted and grounded, not in what we've done, but in what Christ has done. Because he loves us. Because he loves us and laid down his life for us. We come to one who is able to exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think. We've mentioned how he is God come in the flesh. He's the fulfillment of the promise made right as sin entered the world. God mercifully announced good news that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush sin. Who would rescue sinful man. Who would deliver us. And he came, Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, the fulfillment a portion earlier in Isaiah when God prophesied 700 years before that this would be a sign unto his people that there would be a woman who was a virgin and she would be with child. Jesus came and he lived an obedient life. He kept the law of God perfectly every stroke of every day. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. And then I mentioned these religious leaders. 
Jesus is upsetting their plans, their little kingdoms, their suffocating kingdoms of one. He's upsetting the order of things and the power and the prestige that they would have for themselves. They've forgotten that they're to honor God and to serve God. And Jesus is upsetting that. And so in time, they do seize him and they put him to death. They think they're rid of him. But see, there's something else going on because that too is a fulfillment of prophecy. God, the Father's will was being done and Christ was crucified. But as he was crucified, he hung between heaven and earth as the sin bearer. He took on himself the sin of his people. And he received the condemnation, the guilt, and the wrath of God that we deserve in hell forever and ever and ever without end. He endured that wrath as our substitute. He became an atonement. For our sin. He satisfied God. He fulfilled the whole Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, all of it pointing to Him. And in that moment, He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But this is what the God- Father promised back in John 3 For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. And he adds more, but have everlasting life. The Father sent his Son. This is why he came. The world was in the bonds of sin and iniquity, and everyone had turned to his own way, and no one sought after God. Every thought of every man, woman, boys, and girl's heart was only evil, always, continually. No, my dear friends, it was not because of man's worthiness. It was because of the love of God. And Martha and Mary, they make their petition based upon that. John will write, providentially, our brother elder brought up the same verse, First John 4.10. John will write in his first letter, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Children, I just want to remind you what the word propitiation means. He satisfied the debt we owed. He took the wrath of God. And it was spent, and it is removed. That's what it is to propitiate. He appeased the wrath of God. He also expiated, another big doctrinal word, which means he took away our guilt. We're washed if we're in Christ, cleansed and free from sin. He is the propitiation. He writes it a little later in verse 19 of the same chapter, we love him. Because he first loved us. Matthew Henry got this exactly right. He says, our love to God is not worth speaking about. Matter of fact, isn't it? Our love for God is not worth speaking about. But his love for sinners can never be spoken too much about. I don't know if I got that right. Too, spoken about too much. There's never, we can never exhaust it. We can never say too much about his love for us. So let us all begin our prayer to God. His love for wretched sinners as we are, that he is a God of mercy. Let us begin each prayer with gratitude that God so loved that he gave. My dear friends, when we approach God in prayer, remembering how great his love is for us, we will be encouraged to pray. We can come with great petitions to our king. We can make bold requests unto our God. We can pray with the confidence that the judge of all the earth will do right. But we always want to remember to pray as we even prayed moments ago. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All our prayers should wrap up with that. Thy will be done. This is my petition, but thy will be done. And certainly we see that play out in the story that is before us. Brings us to the third point, the Father's will. 
Verse 4 tells us how Jesus responded. Verse 4 in words and verse 5 in action. Or verse 6 with action. When Jesus heard that, that is the message, the message from Mary and Martha, Behold, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. John puts that in there. That's as the author is recording these things. He says, he loved them. Before he then tells us, and when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. Jesus didn't just rush off. Jesus did not speak a word that he would be healed. He delayed two days because he loved Martha and her sister. He delayed. Does this seem remarkable to you? Just a few short verses from where we're stopping today, where we'll pick up next, well, we won't go far, that far next week, but a few verses later on, we're going to find that in the time of that delay, Lazarus died. You say, but, but preacher, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her brother. Yes, and that's why he delayed. This is a remarkable story as we see how it plays out. Jesus as man, the God-man, full of the Holy Spirit, he knew what the Father's will was. He knew that the Father was going to send him to Bethany and to raise Lazarus from the dead. Remember, we've seen again and again and again through John's account, he says, Jesus has told us, I do what I see my Father doing. I say what I hear my Father saying. He's walking in obedience as the second Adam. He's being faithful in all things, obedient unto the Father, even unto the point of death. And thus he delays, he waits to go, so the Lazarus would die because God the Father had a bigger, bigger purpose than what Mary and Martha could imagine. You see that when he arrives, that they're wailing and weeping, but Jesus has come to do something most remarkable. The Father was at work in all this. The Father was at work to exalt his name, but also to exalt the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, who he sent into the world. And to give Lazarus a testimony unlike any other. Oh, there were others that Jesus raised from the dead. The widow of Nain's son, you know, dead, being carried out that same day. Lazarus is four days dead when Jesus comes. It's most remarkable. But this event also gives us a vivid picture. You have heard this from me from this pulpit time and time again. We're Lazarus. That is a picture of us. We are dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything good, contrary to God, in rebellion against God. And even our best deeds are done from wrong motives because they're not done out of love for God. We're a filthy, rotten corpse, dead in our trespasses. One more thing. This occasion, in the context into which Jesus reveals himself, then, as the resurrection and the life. So what he says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the one to come and bring life to those who are dead. Not physical death, he does that too, but spiritual death. We all sinned in Adam, we are all dead spiritually. Jesus has come with the, res- the resurrection of the life to bring life to dead sinners. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, even as he will raise all men, women, boys and girls at the end of the age, some to everlasting punishment, and others to life everlasting in heaven, to those who are sent out by the Father into judgment and punishment because they rejected Christ when they had the day of salvation. Even now there are those 
who lose loved ones to death. Some of us have experienced that recently. Father and mother, today marks the 37th year of when my mother was suddenly taken and as a result of an accident. But we don't grieve as the world does. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those who have a confidence in our God. There is a resurrection in life. We're comforted by the knowledge that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus' suffering was real. When they said, Lord, he whom you love is sick, he was sick, sick unto death. It was just a matter of days and he would be gone. This concern, Mary and Martha, the concern that they had was very real. They needed to be comforted. And indeed, the Father did comfort them. When Jesus did not come and another day passed by and they looked at their brother becoming weaker unto death, they probably thought thoughts as we do when we're praying for something and the answer is delayed. It's hard to wait on God. And it goes back to that garden problem. We want to be God. We want to call the shots. We want to have our agenda. And when we come, we want to submit it to God and say, God, this is what you need to do. God is not a genie in a bottle. He's not there to do our beck and call. He is there to do all his holy will. And what he does is right. And there are times when his ways, we don't understand them. As the scripture says, they're past finding out. The events that we will see as John's gospel continues to unfold. You can imagine the, you know, these, these two, Mary and Martha, are baffled. Their brother dies. Jesus doesn't come until he's dead. But what about the disciples who've walked with Jesus and they've seen the miracles, the mighty miracles, even this one that's about to be taken place as recorded here in John 11, and yet they see him seized and arrested and led away, led away and crucified on a Roman cross. How they wondered, and yet the Father's will was being done. As it has been from the beginning of time, God is God ruling over all the affairs of men. Remember Job? The book of Job there in the Old Testament, in the midst of the wisdom literature. Job was afflicted beyond measure. You know, we've suffered. We've all suffered something, some more than others, but none of us have suffered as Job has. And I like to remind myself and others, Job didn't get to read chapter 1 and 2. Next time you look at Job, remember, when you read that, Job did not know what we as readers know. And he waited on the Lord. Listen to R. Kent Hughes, uh, a contemporary, uh, a preacher, a commentator. He captures all this so well. The aggravation, the frustration, the, 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 the uh, even delusionment that we experience sometimes. When a child dies in his mother's arm as she cried for God to help, and the ambulance lies stalled two blocks away. We wonder if God cares. When a Christian is falsely accused, and he pleads with God to bring evidence to clear him, and it is only after his reputation is ruined that the evidence comes, we wonder if God cares. We plan some great event for God, and the whole thing then falls through. That's what I was referring to earlier. We wonder if God cares. Remember Joseph? In Genesis, a couple years back, Joseph, the son of Jacob, was a man like unto us. His brothers seize him, sell him as a slave. He's taken down to Egypt where he's sold as a slave to a very powerful man who has a lustful, predatory wife, and she comes after him. We'd call her a cougar today. She goes after that young man and falsely accused him as he fled away from her to maintain his honor and to obey God. Did God care at that time for Joseph? Yes, he did. Joseph 
was faithful, and he waited on God's promises for over a decade. And then God exalted him to be the ruler over all of Egypt. And as he ruled with wisdom given to him by God, he set aside the abundance of the seven years of bounty so that the peoples of that whole region were saved through the seven years of famine. Joseph's one of the greatest pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Did God care? God absolutely cared. Joseph's slavery was part of God's plan to bring him to the exalted position that he would serve as God's will, uh, uh, ruler on the earth. God was at work in it all. As Joseph says at the end of his life, yes, you, my sinful brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Let us remember that when our prayers are answered contrary to what we thought, or we're waiting, there's a delay. God meant it for good. You see this story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. You know, it seemed to them that the disease was just evil and that his death was unnecessary, and he, they buried him away. If they had any hope, it was so little, but it seemed so evil, and yet God meant it for good. What a glorious good came out of it. God knew what he was doing. And he had Jesus delay. The Father knows best. He knows what is right for us. He knows the right circumstances for us. The Father's will is always what is best. Brother Elder Slater often reminds us of John Newton's quote, what John Newton used to say. I'm not going to get this exactly right. I got the essence of it, though. Everything I have, the Father knows that I need. And nothing that the Father withholds is necessary. Our God is sovereign over all things. As we conclude, God, uh, John has told us a number of times that Jesus, I mean, that the Jews were not successful seizing Jesus. Seizing Jesus. We've seen that several times. They, they wanted to stone it. They wanted to seize it. They went to do it, and he's walked away from them. Why? Why have they not done it? John's told us, because his hour had not come. The Father knows best. You see, there was a multitude of prophecies concerning this one, God come in flesh, God incarnate. They would all be fulfilled, and it would all happen right at the right time so that Jesus would be arrested at the time of the Passover, after he had observed the last Passover meal and then established the Lord's Supper that he gave as a gift to his church, to all who believe. Then he was taken out. Interested. Then he was lifted up on the Roman cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he was lifted up on the wood as it were like Moses' serpent, that if the people looked to it when the vipers bit them, they were saved, pointing again to Christ. All these things and many, many, many more. All these delays, even to that point, were not delays. It was the coalescing and the coming together of God's entire purpose. All the prophecies fulfilled, every last one of them, none left out, because God was at work in it. And my friends, that's true in our, our puny little lives, our ordinary, just mundane lives that we live. God knows best, and he's at work in them. That's what Paul writes in Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called ones according to his purpose. Jesus' second coming. Why does he delay? The Father knows best. He wants to make sure every lost sheep of Israel is called in to the household of God. When our prayers are delayed, the answers to our prayers are delayed, it's because the Father knows best. He knows what is best. It's for his glory 
as this account, as we move through it, we'll see it's for his glory. It's because he loves us that things are delayed in what he orders, and it is for our good. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do ask your blessing upon your word. We thank you for this picture of your sovereign rule and reign in a matter that took place some 2,000 years ago in a little village of Bethany. And yet the, the truth, uh, the reality is that resonate and ring loud and clear even today as we see your son while he walked amongst the earth, on the earth, uh, faithfully doing your holy will, you carrying out your purpose, ordering all things as they should be for your glory, for our good, because of your great love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.